Well, I'm convinced through all my ministry experiences and discipling others, mentoring others, I'm convinced that one of the most powerful questions we can ask each other and ask ourselves in the context of discipleship and mentoring is, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? We're pretty obsessed in our culture, as most of us well know, with the notion of what do you want to do? We focus on doing, oftentimes over being. Even with our kids, we ask them, little Johnny, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, we're thinking about, we might have an answer over here, actually. Awesome. Awesome. So we focus on the doing. We focus on maybe being a policeman or a fireman or an astronaut or a teacher or, in my case, a professional baseball player when I was a kid. That didn't quite pan out. But when we are following Christ, I believe the equally, if not more important question, again, is who do you want to be? Who do you want to become? I love it. Of course, that question, as we know, can travel with us through all the different seasons of life, through different jobs, different experiences, different opportunities, different roles that we may have. And so my question for you this morning is, who do you want to be? What do you want to become? And many of us want to be generous. We want to be wise. We want to be loving. We want to be sacrificial, we want to be encouragers, we want to be fruitful, we want to be confident. But another question is, who do you want to be even in the face of suffering, even in the face of hardship, even in the face of your own death one day? What sort of person do you want to be there? How do you want to show up? In our text this morning out of John 14, we see the kind of person that Jesus was. We see how Jesus showed up right at the very end, and for him, of course, it was an agonizing end. What do we see there? Well, for our purposes this morning, you might summarize how Jesus shows up, the sort of person that he is in the face of his coming suffering and death by saying that he's someone who freely offers comfort. He freely offers conviction. And he also offers a confidence to those who he loved, his disciples, those who have trusted him and followed him and learned from him. Now this text, there's many, many famous texts built within this text that we're tackling this morning. And really this text deserves hundreds of sermons, but we'll do our best to focus on these themes as we discover this Jesus and who he was in the end. Let us pray as we look at this word. And so God, we do thank you for your word. Lord, you are in fact the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, help us to believe and follow. And God, as we do every time, we do pray that your word would accomplish its work according to your will and the power of your spirit in our hearts this day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this text this morning and this whole section of scripture, which is known as the Upper Room Discourse, as Jesus is in his final hours with his disciples, 
right here, Jesus offers to them everything that they will need for a life of purpose and to carry on this mission that he has begun. But in chapter 13, you might say that there's some some shadows that begin to fill in, a a sense of darkness that begins to fill in for Jesus and and his disciples because Jesus explains to them that he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be disowned. He's going to have to soon depart from them. And so it's in that setting and in that feeling that he offers them first a word of eternal comfort. Look at verses 1 through 3. Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So what we have here is, is, is a promise of, of an eternal home with God, with the Heavenly Father. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, you trust in God. Or other translations say, you believe in God. Same Greek word. Jesus says, Believe also in me. He says, I am just as trustworthy. In fact, Jesus is going to soon reveal in an astounding way that he's just as trustworthy because he is one and the same with the Father. Jesus is saying, trust me, friends, that there's no shortage of room in the heavenly presence of God. Jesus was facing trouble now. His disciples were facing trouble now. They certainly would in the days and weeks and years that would follow the resurrection and Jesus' glorification. But Jesus says, take heart. There's an eternal promise waiting for you. But what does Jesus also say? He says not only that, but he promises to return to bring them to be with him where he is. Jesus is talking about his second coming, his second advent that we await when he will bring his people into the eternal kingdom. Last summer, my cousin Kimberly put me on the phone with my Aunt Kathy as she lay in a hospice in Florida. And by that time, my aunt couldn't speak much, couldn't respond much, but I shared with her just for a couple of moments my, my gratitude for her. And then I read these very same verses over her. My aunt was an otherwise healthy and active woman, but it was only one month between when symptoms first appeared of pain in her abdomen and her low back to when ovarian cancer took her life. But What's amazing and what's so special about that brief interaction with her was that I knew that she was confident in her destiny. I was confident in her destiny. She was confident that she would see Jesus and be with him. Friends, there's a great hope for us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus that we will be with the Lord forever that one day he will deliver us from the trials, the pain, the, the suffering that we may face in this life. 
We take heart, we have hope that there is a place for us in his eternal kingdom. But we also take heart that it's not just for the future, but even for now, that God walks with us through our pain and our suffering. So for Jesus, what kind of person was he in the end? How did Jesus show up for his closest ones? He offered to them a comfort of an eternal promise. But then we come to a couple of the most profound revelations, not just in this gospel, but really in the whole of the Bible. The disciples are a little perplexed. They're they're confused. They don't quite get it as is often the case. Of course, Thomas is honest enough to pipe up for some clarification, and we're grateful for that. But in verse 4, Jesus says to them, You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Now notice what Jesus doesn't say here. He doesn't say, you know the place where I'm going. He says, you know the way to the place where I am going. The reality is there's a whole lot about eternal things, about heaven, about hell, about the eternal state. There's some things that we just don't know. But even though there's mystery surrounding all of that, Jesus reminds us here that he is the way forward. Verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 6, we have one of the most important scriptures in all the Bible, one that maybe you've memorized over many years, one that you've taken to heart. But it's also one that many of us stumble over. Preachers really love when Jesus says hard things so that we don't only have to be the one that says hard things. And that's what Jesus does here. He says something that's hard and that we have to wrestle with. But for us, instead of just kind of trusting what what appears to be a plain understanding of what he's saying in verse 6, we seem to stumble over this. Studies show that our commitment to Jesus really as the only way, if you will, is mixed. The Pew Research Center a few years ago reported a study which found that 58% of Americans who identify as Christians believe that there are, in fact, multiple religions that lead to heaven. That compared to 70% of of just a a broader sample, not just those who identified as Christians, but 70% of Americans believing the same thing. Strikingly, the same study shows that 56% of evangelical Christians, and that's a bit of a label that has some baggage associated with it, but But just so you know, our church and me and perhaps many of you identify as evangelicals. I am unashamedly an evangelical. It has some political baggage with it. But just for context, that is sort of the tradition that we flow in as a church. But 56% of people who identify as evangelical Christians believe that there are many paths to God other than Jesus Christ. 
Now, of course, in these studies and these surveys, people can just sort of claim a label that they may identify with without any theological agreement or commitment to what they're actually saying in that. So I grant you that. But what these studies show is that only a minority of evangelical Christians, who I will argue in just a moment, are especially well-positioned to claim Jesus as the only way. Only a minority is able to do that clearly. Now, we don't have a time for a full lesson on evangelicalism, though I would love that, but for our purposes this morning, there's a couple of things about the evangelical movement that are relevant here. And it's because the evangelical movement places a priority on a couple of things that play into this. The first of that, the, these is that God's word, the scriptures, both old and new, are authoritative. Authoritative when it comes to morals and ethics about the revelation of who God is, about who man is and about God's purposes in the world. And so we take the Bible seriously, even the really hard parts. But the other piece that's relevant here is that evangelicals, by and large, believe that a personal relationship with Jesus Christ or personal conversion to Jesus Christ is necessary for salvation. So in other words, we can't just be born into faith or into saving faith, but that we all have to embrace Christ for ourselves. So the point is, even though there are many in this camp who would identify with this tradition, a tradition that's arguably the best position to say Jesus is the only way, the majority struggle to affirm that. Now why? I think some of the answers are clear. I think we live in a pluralistic society. All kinds of religions and ideologies and worldviews we're exposed to all the time. Some, you know, in some commendable way, want to remain humble around this. That we can't perhaps know everything. And I would say to you that humility is important in certain theological issues. Not this one, but certainly in other matters. Other people lean into compassion for those that don't know Christ. And I feel that too. That raises a lot of questions, really valid questions about what about those that don't know? What about those that haven't heard? But the best direction that compassion can lead us is to share Jesus with others, to love others well, to point them to Christ. And so we have to really wrestle with the words of Christ. We have to really wrestle with verse 6. But there's another important claim that I think helps us here in verses 7 and following. Look at this. Jesus says, If you really knew me, you will know my Father as well. From now on you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. By Father here, Jesus is talking about the one true God that the disciples could comfortably say, yes, 
We worship the one true God. We follow the one true God. This this father and this intimate father-son relationship, Jesus sort of introduces when he comes to this earth. Jesus shows how he has this communion with the father. It's It's a union with the father that he's had for all eternity. It's a union that he maintains during his earthly life, and it's a unity that he maintains even now as he is the risen Christ. Jesus is saying here, listen, if you've seen me, you've seen the true God. I am it. And as we stare at that, friends, if we believe that Jesus Christ is the fullest, highest revelation of of God in this world, he's really a totally different God than anything else offered to us. This is a God who is personal, not impersonal. This is a God who is both imminent and transcendent. This is a God who desires not our works, but our worship. This is a God who is both creator and savior. This is a God who comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So friends, what's the point? The point is that if we want to embrace the conviction that Jesus offers his disciples and us, if we want to embrace a historic and a biblical Christianity, we're compelled to confess with the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4 that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Let that just wash over you. So Jesus offers comfort. He also offers an important clarity and a conviction about who he is. But finally, we see that he offers his followers confidence. Confidence. Look at verse 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Did you catch that? Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. This is a a stunning phrase. We can handle this in a few different ways. You might say that As individual believers, the works, perhaps the miracles that we can perform in Jesus' name will in fact be more extraordinary than what Jesus did. Now, I don't know how any of us could top raising somebody from the dead or multiplying food or making the lame walk or making the blind see. I'm not quite sure that's it. I believe in our authority as believers. To do all of it. I'm not sure, quite sure that's it. Others would say that Jesus, what Jesus means here is that collectively, as a global church through the ages, that the scope and the ministry of miracles and the ongoing ministry of Jesus is greater and more expansive as we pursue signs and wonders in his name around the world. So some merit to that. Of course, You know, Jesus' ministry was quite limited, actually. He ministered in Galilee and Judea. But of course, as we know and as we praise God for, his church has taken his message and his ministry to the ends of the earth. 
But there's a third kind of more nuanced option to understand what's going on here, and I think it makes some sense. And it's that the works of the church, which is, which is us, which is the people of God, are greater because they are set in the context of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, during Jesus' ministry, he, of course, performed miracles and signs and wonders. But what the crowds who looked on lacked was sort of a clarity about a a framework, a, a context to understand all of these things. But we now stand on this side of Jesus' resurrection and his glorification. And so what becomes clear for us is that all of these things are a pointer to a whole new age, a whole new reality, a whole new kingdom, which Jesus began at his resurrection. And so, friends, be reminded that the Christian life here is about carrying on the very ministry of Christ himself. And that our confidence is based in the fact that we minister in the power of the Spirit, his Spirit. And Jesus is clear with his disciples, he's clear with us that we should expect greater things, that we should expect God to move, and that we should pray for it. Look at verses 13 and 14. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Just another astounding phrase from these few verses of Scripture. I've been in some Christian movements that would look at a verse like that and conclude that all of our prayers for healing, really all of our prayers of any kind, should be offered in Jesus' name. I don't think that's a bad conclusion. I think it's actually useful. I think it reminds us of whose power we're ministering in. But it's also important to remember here that asking in someone's name implies asking according to their will. Asking according to their will. So this verse is not about us sort of binding God to answer our prayer because we pray in Jesus' name. Rather, It's about us seeking and discerning his will in all things. Well, what is his will? Well, I'll attempt to answer this question from the best data that I know, which is the scriptures themselves and the life of Christ. It was Jesus' will during his ministry to bring freedom to people who were demonized, It was his will to heal the sick. It was his will to open blind eyes. It was his will to feed people. It was his will to care for the marginalized, make sure they felt love and care. It was his will to serve and to draw people into faith and obedience. It was also his will to challenge false religion and false religious leaders. I have less data on if it's Jesus' will to, for example, give the Patriots a better season next year. (laughs) We all hope for that. Or to get that sports car you've always wanted, or to win the lottery. I'm less confident there. But we have some information. 
And so, friends, in this new year, as you think about your prayer life, as you think about where your heart is, ask yourself and reflect, can I with confidence pray this in Jesus' name? That's a good filter. So here, Jesus, in his closing hours, who is the type of person that he is? How does he show up? He's one that offers comfort, clarity, which is so important for us, and a confidence that he has every intention to continue his ministry through his people, and that his will will be done as we pray and seek. For these disciples who were learning that their time with their teacher and their Lord and their friend was drawing to a close, Jesus gives them everything that they need. What about us? What about you? What do you need? Maybe you need the comfort of the Lord right now. Maybe life has been hard, challenging. Maybe life has beaten you up some. Jesus promised in this world you will have trouble. But friends, if that's you this morning, receive this encouragement from the Lord. That as you persist in faith and your obedience to Christ, even in the face of all your circumstances, that God will deliver you one day and that he is with you now. Maybe you're challenged by a need to have some greater clarity about who this Jesus is, greater conviction about him. Maybe you're feeling challenged by that. Jesus tells us, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says to us the hard things. Let it wash over you. Wrestle with it. Maybe for you, you need an intentional opportunity to dig into this, to, to, to reflect on who this Jesus is, to learn, to explore. Maybe it's Alpha. Maybe it's studying the Scriptures with other people. But press into Him if you need greater clarity and conviction. Or maybe it's confidence. Maybe you're needing confidence in the Lord. Confidence that your prayers are really going anywhere. Confidence that He hears you. Confidence that you can make any sort of difference in all the brokenness that you see around you and in your own life. Confidence that Jesus has a ministry for you. Friends, just like the disciples, God gives us everything that we need to flourish and to follow him. So this year, let us receive it with great faith. Let us pray. God, we do ask that you would empower your people. We do ask that you would supply all that we need. We do ask that by your Holy Spirit you would comfort, that by your Holy Spirit you would bring clarity and conviction. By your Holy Spirit you would bring a confidence in your name for the ministry that you've called us to. So Lord, pour out your Spirit. Meet your people where they are, that we may follow you with great faith this year. In Jesus' name, amen.